Let us stand together this morning and greet each other in the name of Jesus. And say good morning.
pray. Heavenly Father, you truly do stand in the fire beside us. May we remember through every trial and tribulation, you are always there. May you be the first person we look to and not the last. May we also remember that there are many out there who do not know you and need to know that you are there for them. There is no one who loves us more or as much as you do. May we never forget that. May we always trust you.
thinking about when Luke asked me to MC this, I was the second service, by the way, but uh, in the, you know, what, what's happened in my life this week, you always like to kind of look back on that, and wasn't really coming up with anything big, but then on the other hand, I got thinking about grace, and that's pretty big. Um, I had a friend of mine compare her life to a, a Laurel and Hardy movie or, or a Three Stooges, as a young and dumber to some of you younger ones. Um, you don't know who those people are, but as uh, one of them leans forward, a uh, rolling pin flies behind his head that just barely misses him, and he never even knows what happened. And that somehow, you know, grace sometimes is that way, that we, we take it for granted what God's grace is. We, uh, oh, we, through his word, through where we are born, our parents, 
our Sunday school teachers, school teachers, and just where we're at. You know, we take that for granted how fortunate we are. And by God's grace, we have a lot of advantages. We're very blessed. Um, just blessed to know God and his salvation. And as you know, I've had some health issues last year and just a little uptake. And first of all, I'd like to thank everyone for their prayers. I've been, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a rough ride. It's, it's, it's uh, interesting along the way, but uh, we're doing pretty good. Some side effects, some things you deal with, and, you know, maybe they'll go away, maybe they won't. But but uh, feel we're pretty in a pretty good spot. Uh, still take scans and will in July. There's always something to be, have a little concern, but that's how you live life now, and you got to get used to that. And uh, that's what we need to choose to do. Sometimes it's easier to say you're going to than to do that. But uh, many of you know that. Many of you have health issues or have experienced them and maybe not share it either. So thank you, Tim, for your prayers. Um, let's see. Other than that, got a few announcements. Um, First of all, Daniel Quirin will be our guest speaker today. Uh, for those of you that may not know him, he grew up in this church, and he's now in Chapman, Kansas. I'll let him say what he's doing and those kind of things. But uh, we, we look forward to his message. Uh, Daniel, that, I was asked once years ago, and I declined, and I'm still okay with that. But I, I give you a lot of credit for doing it. That's, that's, a, <laughs> that's a good thing. I, we look forward to that. Um, otherwise, before I go any farther... Laura has an announcement needs to make, and I have a few more after that, but we'll let her, let her do that. Good morning. Um, so this year has been a year that I've decided to try new things. It was one of my um, New Year's resolutions, and so one thing I've been doing is attending some um, different women's gatherings, and I've really found that I really love small group fellowship with um, with other ladies, and that's something I had really missed um, previously. Uh, and so a couple of the groups that I had been attending kind of quit for the summertime, and I thought, guys, I'd still like something. So um, in your bulletin, there is a little announcement. Um, June, Monday's in June. There will be a small group gathering um, at my mother-in-law's house, the ladies are going to gather at her house, and then the kids will play at my house. And we live right on the same yard, so it's real close. Um, but I thought it would be a neat opportunity for kids to play and for ladies to gather. Um, so just wanted to get the word out. I'm also going to send invites to the Wednesday night moms, too. Um, and I don't know if you guys have ever tried anything new. It's hard. So um, encourage somebody to come because it'll be new for them, too. Um, and so, yeah. Guys, encourage a, a lady to come, um, and gals, I hope to see you there. Thanks. Thanks, Laura. She she will make it pretty easy to be there, so encourage that. She'll that'd be a good thing. Um, other thing: memorial service, two p.m. at the cemetery on Sunday after. Potluck at six. Okay, service in the family center. Bring main dish and side to share. Guests next week. No, that's off. Well, he crossed part of it out, but not all of it. So I'm sorry. Okay, thank you very much. So no potluck next week, but there will be a memorial service at 2 p.m. Okay, at the cemetery. 
you for correcting me. That would, somebody wouldn't be happy. Um, garage sale and pork loin meal on June 16. I think that's on. That's for the big community garage sale. That'll be good. Uh, church camp weekend, June 17th is Father's Day. Uh, we do that every year, and uh, it's a good service in the morning. You don't have to camp there. You don't have to just come for the service. It's nothing. It's good. It's a good time. And the VBS team is looking for helpers and group leaders. So think about that. Um, we need to pray for direction for our church, where we're headed with uh, upcoming events and, and team building and, and possible brand change. And we just need to pray for that. Pray for school children. Summer is upon us. Parents got new schedules, so we pray for that. And just take on, uh, yeah, summer. So we're going to pray for the offering, and then worship team will sing. And after that, Daniel will come along. So let's pray. Lord, we come to you this uh, this morning. This we, we thank you for being able to meet here and able to have the freedom to do that and to worship you. Uh, we thank you for the rain we receive, for, for the crops, um, and just how you make them grow. That alone is a is a miracle just watching that all happen and we thank you for that and um, thank you for this church people that are in it and just their their faithfulness to you and we pray for that this coming week that we show christ in our lives the people we, we bring across so we just pray for events that are coming and summer that's upon us with children and out of school we pray for direction there and parents and new con new schedules and things going on in there so Pray for uh, Luke as he's at fire school, and uh, just pray they'd have a good day, a good time. Greg seems to have someone that he touches there when he goes, just being a, a fireman and a pastor. They have all the different uh, different combinations, so we uh, pray for him safety and, and just uh, bless his day. Thank you, Lord, for what you do for us.
right, hello everybody. Hello. As was said, my name is Daniel Quaring. Uh, I grew up in this church in a sense. I started coming here in about eighth grade. Um, and uh, a lot of my family still continues to go here. Uh, I went to Tabor College. I graduated from here in Henderson, Nebraska in 2013. Uh, and so I went to Tabor College. I graduated last spring, and I got hired to teach high school science in Chapman, Kansas. Uh, it's kind of by Abilene, if you know the area. Um, and so I finished my first year doing that uh, on Friday. And um, I know many of you will ask, well, Daniel, how did your first year of teaching go? And my standard response to that so far has been, well, it definitely happened, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I was I was talking with a, a friend of mine last night who is also a science teacher. He's just a year older than me, and uh, I think I think we came to the conclusion it was about you know 52 percent good, 48 percent bad. So I, from what I from what I hear, that's what you should expect for uh, for first year teaching. But uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and get started here. Um, so I, I'm titling this talk here uh, called the struggle. And we're going to cover the story of Jacob and Esau, which goes on in Genesis 32 and 33. Um, but I, I suppose what, what sort of follows, or, or what, what this sort of has come from, is, is an epiphany. And so if you know what an epiphany means, it's a vocab. I remember this, it's a vocabulary word I learned in school when I was in seventh grade. And it's the sudden realization, right? It's a light bulb moment that happens in your mind. You uh, you have this, you sort of put things together for the first time and you have this realization, right? That's what it means to have an epiphany. And so what, what this is, was, was in a sense an epiphany that I had my freshman year of college. And, and, you know, it took me, you know, a few years here to sort of sort it out in my mind to a, to a version where I can talk to you guys about it. But, um, epiphanies are funny things to me because, um, is in my estimation, there are these things that, uh, you know, day in and day out, life or nature or God or, who, or whatever it is, teaches you small lessons, and you're actually learning every day that you're alive, whether you know it or not. And so you learn these sort of small lessons, and uh, they sort of accumulate over time. And then all of a sudden, you discover the, a sort of underlying pattern that unites them, and you have this realization. My goodness, this is how the world works. And it, it kind of illuminates your view, right? And so um, this is an epiphany I had a while ago. And I'm going to tell it through the story of Jacob and Esau because Jacob um, learns throughout his life a lesson by God. And then eventually he has this epiphany. And so um, hopefully I can communicate that well. But to start off, some background here for Jacob and Esau. Um, this is a story that maybe you learn in Sunday school or something like that, but it, it sort of plays itself out in three parts. It's kind of a long, drawn-out story in Genesis, but we usually only learn the first part. And the first part has to do with Jacob and Esau, their brothers. And what happens is, is that their father, Isaac, is very old, and he's blind. He can't even see anything, really. And he says to his oldest son, Esau, you know, go out, get me some food, and I will bless you. And so what we have to understand is that in ancient culture, a blessing was something that was kind of like a legal contract or a will, right? It mattered who got the blessing in the family. 
because whoever got the blessing in the family was sort of the, the patriarch, right? They were the head of the family. They got the possessions. They, their name lived on, right? This was an important thing. Uh, it's like an inheritance in a sense. And so Esau, being the oldest son, stands to get this blessing from Isaac. But what we see happen is that Jacob is, is probably jealous, and he hatches this plan to steal the blessing from Esau. And so Esau is a hairy man, and so Jacob is not hairy, apparently. And so he puts goat skins on his arms to disguise himself as Esau. And he wears Esau's clothes in order to smell like Esau. And he goes in there and tricks his old, nearly dying, blind father into giving him this blessing. And so this happens in Genesis 27, 22 through 27. And so he steals the blessing. Jacob does it. He pulls it off. He steals the blessing from Esau. And of course, when Esau finds out, he is very angry. So Genesis 27, 41 says, So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. And so Esau is very angry. And what this forces Jacob to do is to flee. He has to leave his home. He has to leave the, all of his inheritance. He has to leave it all so he can save his life and not be killed by his brother Esau. But we see something interesting happen after he departs. After he departs, Jacob has done this terrible thing. He's essentially stolen everything from Esau. And God says, do not worry. I will be with you, and I will bless you, and I will make you into a great nation. And that seems like an odd thing to do to someone who, who just stole his brother's inheritance. But hopefully we can unpack that here a little bit. And so Jacob goes to live with his uncle, and his uncle's name is Laban. And Laban turns out to be sort of a shady character. Um, and uh, here, here this slide says, Laban's trickery. So, well, well, Laban is known as sort of this con artist in, in a sense, right? Because what happens is, is that Jacob arrives in the home of Laban, and he, he sees Laban's daughter, Rachel, and he falls in love with Rachel, and he strikes this deal with Laban. He says, hey, Laban, if I work for you for seven years, can I marry Rachel? And Laban agrees. So, so Laban works, or sorry, uh, Jacob works for Laban for seven years. It's time for the wedding. The bride is out there. She's veiled. In the morning, Jacob wakes up and realizes he did not marry Rachel. He married her older sister, Leah. And so Laban had swapped them out, right? He, Laban had cheated Jacob. And so, of course, when Jacob confronts Laban with this, Laban says, well, yeah, I did a pretty bad thing. But if you work for me seven more years, then you can have Rachel, right? And so um, Jacob's time under Laban, he spends about 20 years living with Laban. It's not a great time, right? But, but God still blesses him. And so I want to pause the story right here because this is sort of just a preamble to what I want to talk about. And I, I want to give more background here about my sort of realization or the things that sort of led to my realization about four years ago. Um, I think it's an important question to ask ourselves, what should we expect to be a part of the authentic Christian experience? And here's what I mean by this is that if I give you directions of somewhere where to go, and I say, you know, pass the big tree on the left and go past the red house, 
you are going to be looking for those signposts. And if you see those signposts, you will know you're on the right track. And if you don't see those signposts, you will know that you are off the beaten path, right? You're off track, right? And so it's an important question to ask ourselves, well, what sort of things, if we're following Christ, if we're Christians, what sort of things ought we to expect to find and what things should we not expect to find? And so this is an important question for that very reason, right? And so um, we're given these sorts of verses, uh, you know, all sorts uh, throughout the Bible. Um, for instance, I, w- I want to touch on here 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. So we're promised something, that if we accept Christ and we're believers, and we're, we, there's a change that happens in our life. There's a change in identity of who we are. We go from being rebels against God to being actually children of God. But what is that characterized by? Right? I think in America, it's, it's easy to, for Christianity to be characterized and the typical Christian to be seen as someone who has it all together, right? It's someone who is, you know, has victory over sin. They don't smoke. They don't drink. They, the worst word they say is gosh, right? And, and so, well, the question is, is, is that the narrow range of Christian experience? Or is it wider? And in order to answer that question here, I, I want to I go to Isaiah. But before we do that, you know, some people might resonate with this new creation verse. You know, when I found God, I felt like a new person. Some people might resonate with what Paul says here in, in Romans 5. In Romans 5, he says, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. And so... Paul wants to do good, but he can't do it. And this, as far as my understanding goes, is what I mean by the struggle, right? People struggle as Christians. And so maybe you, sitting here today, more resonates, you, you know, you, you feel like your life aligns more with the frustrations here of Paul than maybe in 2 Corinthians. So I want to answer this question. What is the realm of normative Christian experience? What is the things that we should expect? And so I want to start here with Isaiah. This is Isaiah 6. Uh, Isaiah is a prophet. And he has this sort of vision at the beginning of the book of Isaiah. He says, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, 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 is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And here is Isaiah's response. He says, Woe to me, I cried, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. That phrase, I am undone, can also be translated as, I am ruined, I am destroyed. So the point here is, is that the funny thing is, is that Isaiah is the closest to God that he's ever been in his life, and yet his response is one of almost like he's suffering in the presence of God. In the presence of God, he says, I am undone, I am ruined, I am destroyed. Why is he destroyed? Why does he feel this way? Well, it explains it in the next verse. Because I am a man of unclean lips. He sees his sin. And I live among a people of unclean lips. 
And I suppose a profound question can be asked at this point. Well, well what is causing Isaiah's change? And what, what's making Isaiah see what he does? Was it that, did this sin just accumulate out of nowhere and he just sees it? Or was it in fact there the whole time and he just hadn't noticed it? And I think it's that second option that really gets at what I want to talk about here. Is that in the presence of God, and we have to remember who God is, right? God is perfect. God is perfection. God is the standard of all standards. He's the source of all goodness in the universe. And I think that in the presence of the standard of all standards, it is impossible to not see how far you've fallen short from that standard. In essence, the lesson here from Isaiah is that to see God is to see your sin. And I think that as you approach God in proximity, right, the closer that you come to Christ, or the closer you come relationally to God, it necessarily follows that you will realize how far you've fallen short of that standard. And you cannot escape that reality. Right? And, you know, th- there's, a, there's an interesting comment that I heard this year, and uh, we can go to the next slide here. Um, I have a picture up there of people in a club partying, right, you know. And uh, I I was at a Christmas party, and one of the teachers at my school, whenever she was in college, her and her husband went to college in Colby, Kansas, where if you know anything about Colby, Kansas, they say that you can uh, watch your dog run away for a week, right? It's like so flat, and there's nothing there. If your dog runs away, you can watch it run away for a week. Um, and so I didn't even know there were clubs in Colby, Kansas, but, but whenever they were in college, her husband was a DJ and in clubs in Colby, Kansas. And she made an interesting comment because she would be there late at night spending time with him, you know, because when else could she see him, right? And, and so she made this interesting comment. She said, you know, every day or every night, I, I lived through this experience of whenever the bar closed— They would turn on the lights, and you could see things for how they were. So, you know, people are having a great time. It's dark. They're dancing. There's loud music. Um, You're distracted, right? But when you turn on the lights, you can see the dirt on the floor. You can see the alcohol spilled everywhere. You can see the vomit if someone threw up. You can see the blood if there was a fight, right? And you realize that the place that you were standing the entire time was not a great place to be. And you're like, oh my gosh, how did I have so much fun here, right? It's like, you know, it looks like something bad happened here. And so this is the nature of God, that God repeatedly is referred to that God is life, God is love, and God is light. And well, that's the funny thing about light. It it illuminates things. It, It shows you things that you want to see, and it simultaneously shows you things that you do not want to see. And so the idea here is that as you approach God, as you approach the presence of God, as you become closer to him, you will necessarily see your own sin and how far you have fallen short. And for Isaiah, at this point, he feels like he's going to die. He feels destroyed. Uh, the uh, commenting on this verse in Isaiah, there's, a, there's an 1800 Scottish minister named Alexander McLaren. And uh, commenting on this, on this passage, McLaren says this, uh, It was not reverence merely that bowed the, uh, Isaiah's head in the dust, but it was the awakened consciousness. Thou art holy, and now that I understand in some measure 
what thy holiness means. I look on myself and I say, unclean, unclean. And so what Isaiah is going through right now is not pleasant. It is not how we would caricaturize Christianity, right? It's not a smooth path. And so, you know, we, we, in this, we, we see this sort of idea echoed throughout the Bible later on as well. So here in Luke 9, we see that, that Jesus himself is saying this. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And what this puts the picture, it puts, it puts a certain picture in your mind, right? It puts the picture of Christ carrying his cross to the hill on which he would be killed, on the hill on which he would be crucified. And so the idea here that is being implanted into the minds of early believers is that if you want to seek that which is most meaningful, if you want to find God, if you want to be close to him, if you want to be more like Christ, there is a part of yourself that has to die. Or maybe even all of yourself, right? And so what's going on here is that we shouldn't expect smooth sailing throughout the entire Christian experience. You know, whenever Jesus uh, first came to earth, uh, he had an earthly ministry, anywhere from one to three years. And so what happened here is that he was uh, tempted in the wilderness, and then he started his ministry. And immediately after being tempted in the wilderness, you see uh, Jesus start preaching. And this is the message of his preaching. His his preaching was in, in, in Matthew 4.17 here. Um, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And so, actually, if you look at most of the things that Jesus preaches on in the New Testament, the main central teaching, or the main theme of his teaching, is about the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven. And so, Jesus does not mean by the kingdom of heaven like heaven that you go to when you die. What he means is God's rule and reign here on earth. So the kingdom of heaven is something that was established with the coming of Christ. Notice here in Matthew, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. With the beginning of Christ's entry into ministry and entry into the realm of human affairs, here is where the kingdom of God has been established. But you might look around you and say, man, there's wars everywhere, there's poverty, there's famine, there's disease. This doesn't seem like the kingdom of God. To which I would say, you're right. Theologians understand this concept of the kingdom of heaven as something that is already, but not yet. So you'll hear them refer to it as the already, but not yet kingdom. And so the kingdom of God is like a seed that has been planted, but it is not yet grown. Or it is something that has been founded, it is something that has been established, but has not yet reached its full impact. So the kingdom came with Christ, but it is not yet fully realized. Well, how is it that God plans to mold earth into heaven, right? How is it that he plans to change the world? And a big part of that is the church. The church that's worldwide, not just this church, but, but the community of believers, the community of people who are Christians. And in the establishment of the church, Christ has established a sort of new type of humanity, one that stands at the intersection of heaven and earth. 
Well, what does it mean to stand at the intersection of something? What does it mean to stand at the intersection of heaven and earth? Well, God's plan is to change the world through the church. Well, what is the church? The church is a group of individual people like you and me. And so it's my belief that the kingdom of God is something that is in society. It is something that's in the world, but it's also something that is within the heart of each and every believer. The kingdom of God is something that is both within and without. And so it stands to reason that if the kingdom of God is something that is already but not yet, that each individual believer, you and me, is something that is already but not yet. Something real has been established in the heart of someone who believes in God and believes in Christ. But that work, that new creation, has not yet been completed. And so here is where I think the struggle comes from. And I, I want to make something very clear here. I, I'm not, in, in what I'm about to argue here, giving license to sin. I'm not making little of sin, because it's a big deal, right? But what I am saying is that what really matters here is direction. And so we see people who are struggling, right? I'm trying to be like God. I want to be like God. And yet I keep failing. And it hurts sometimes, right? It's, it's not comfortable. It's not a great thing all the time. And so what we see is, well, maybe there's a possibility here. There's the possibility that what if struggling is not something that means that you're on the wrong path? What if it's something that might mean that you're on the right path? And, and here's my simple point around that. Around that is that he who does not care about his sin does not struggle, right? There are people who sin all the time, they do all sorts of bad things, but if they don't care about what they're doing, if they don't think that what they're doing is harmful, then they don't really struggle with their sin. So in order to truly struggle with your sin, you have to, in a sense, be disgusted by it. You have to hate it. You have to want to get it out of your life. And this is something that characterizes the struggle. We see this again with Paul, way back in that verse that I talked about. He wanted to do the good, but he found that he couldn't do it. And so, what characterizes the difference between living in sin and authentic Christian struggling? The difference here is direction. You know, uh, Christ gave uh, this analogy. This is Matthew seven thirteen through 14. It says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Four years ago, I had this realization that it is far better to be on the narrow path that leads to life and to fall flat on your face every five feet than it is to be sprinting down the road that leads to destruction, to be on the wrong path. It's far better to struggle down the path towards God than it is to be sprinting away from God and not struggling at all. And so what characterizes struggling in a pure Christian sense is whether that direction is towards God or away from God. 
So I want to pick up the story of Jacob again. So after 20 years of living with uh, Laban, Jacob gets the call by God to go home, to go back to Esau. We see that God, throughout this time with Laban, even though he has been cheated by Laban, God has blessed him for some reason. He doesn't deserve it. And we see this realization by Jacob. So Jacob is about to head home. He's afraid that Esau is going to kill him. And so he says a prayer to God prior before meeting, uh, prior to meeting Esau. And he says this. This is Genesis 32, 9 through 12. Uh, o God, my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I've become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. And so we see here that there is a shift in Jacob's understanding. He has a realization. Wait a minute, I've been blessed by God, and I don't deserve it. He realizes his guilt. He realizes that he's lived his life in such a way that he is not worthy of the kindness that God has showed him. We see his direction change, in a sense. A direction from self-centeredness towards God. And then we see something very odd. So what happens is that in order to appease Esau, in order to maybe get on Esau's good side, Jacob takes everything he owns and he sends it across a river ahead of him and offers it as a gift to Esau. And so he's sitting on by a river alone, and he has given up everything that he once held so dear. He's given it all up, in the hopes that he would be reconciled with his brother Esau. And then something very odd happens. Genesis 32:30. Or sorry, this is uh, the next following verse here. Um, so Jacob was left alone. He's by himself. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. A guy shows up and they start wrestling. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched and as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with man and have overcome. And so we see that Israel, the nation that is established through Jacob, is God's chosen people. And all along, the very name Israel has always meant struggles with God. Of course, this is an odd experience for Jacob. Um, he later has this uh, realization. He um, realizes in Genesis 32:30, I saw the face of God and yet I was spared. And so what's his realization? His realization is that this man that he was wrestling with was God himself. And that this whole time he had been wrestling 
with the founder of the heavens and the earth, the person who had created everything. And I, I, I would think he'd be a little bit taken back by that. Because the fascinating thing here is that Jacob wrestled with God, and God let him win, in a sense. Not only did he let him win, though, he didn't let Jacob go uninjured. Right? He dislocated his hip or something like that. And he had to limp from, from then on out. So Jacob heads across the river, and Jacob and Esau have this sort of prodigal son moment. While Jacob was still a long ways off, Esau sees his brother, runs towards him, embraces him. There's no fighting, there's no bloodshed, there's nothing like that. The two brothers forgive each other. They become reconciled. And so Jacob says, I'm sorry for everything I've done. Take everything I have. Take, take my livestock. Take all of it. I want, it's yours. I want you to have it. And Esau is a humble guy. He says, you know, I have plenty. Keep what you have. And then here in uh, Genesis 33.10, there's a wicked verse here. And by wicked, I mean, like, awesome. <laughs> Jacob says, no, please, take my things. I have, if I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God, now that you have received me favorably. This is just a couple verses after uh, Jacob realizes that he has literally seen the face of God in the person that he wrestled. And so, those two verses are so close together, talking about the face of God, seeing it in the man he wrestled, and seeing reconcil uh, reconciliation with his brother. The forgiveness of his brother is also seeing the face of God. These two things are so close together, I don't think that they're a coincidence. So maybe this helps us answer a question about why God gave Jacob so much that he didn't deserve. Maybe God blessed Jacob, gave him everything he wanted, so that Jacob could eventually give it all up in the hopes of being reconciled with his brother. What if God blessed Jacob so that Jacob could be reconciled with his brother, could be forgiven by his brother, be reunited with his brother, and therefore be reunited with God? In, in, there's a musical called Les Miserables, and there's a really interesting line in one of the songs towards the end. And the line is, is to love another person is to see the face of God. And I think in Jacob's case, to be forgiven by another person is to see a face of God, in a sense. To be reconciled with another person is to be reconciled to God. And so here we've seen Jacob's direction change. He's reunited with his brother. He's wrestled with God. And I think through those events, he's turned his life around and has started struggling towards God instead of away from him. So a couple of concluding remarks here. It is true that you are a new creation. This is a true fact. Just like the kingdom of God you are something that has been established. You are already, but not yet. 
For instance, in, in Jude one twenty four, now this is the doxology before Jude, it says this, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. And so the simple idea here is this, is that God's plan for every believer is to be made perfect in Christ, to be made more and more like Christ. And the idea that a human being, you and me, that is by definition imperfect, by definition sinful, being made perfect is as far as I can tell a miracle. So what this means is that the events of your life, the small intricacies, the struggles, the things that you endure every day, if you look at it from God's perspective, you are a miracle happening in slow motion. And should we expect this to be a smooth process? I would put forward that it does not come without struggle. C.S. Lewis, the uh, Oxford professor, put it this way. The terrible thing is that a perfectly good God is in this matter hardly less formidable than a cosmic sadist. The more we believe that God hurts only to heal, the less we can believe that there is any use in begging for tenderness. A cruel man might be bribed, might grow tired of his vile sport, might have a temporary fit of mercy, as alcoholics have fits of sobriety. But suppose that what you are up against is a surgeon whose intentions are wholly good. The kinder and more conscientious he is, the more inexorably he will go on cutting. And so this idea here is that if you are a miracle in slow motion, if you are something, if you're a new creation that is being made perfect, this will not always be a pleasant process. It was not for Isaiah. And I don't think it will be for you all the time either. Just like Isaiah, God sees all of your sins past, present, and future before him. So, whenever Isaiah was in the presence of God, Isaiah's perspective changed. All of a sudden, he could see the sin that he couldn't see before. But did God's perspective change? No, it didn't. God could see everything wrong with Isaiah from the day he was born to the day that he died. And here's the thing, is that your life is spread out before God, like a, like a blanket, and he can examine it, past, present, future. Everything that's worse about you, God knows already. There's no use hiding it from him. And yet he died for you. you. You can't surprise God with anything you've done, with anything you do today, or anything that you'll do tomorrow. And so, to end, I, I'll end with this, is that as your proximity to God increases, your own realization of how truly bad or sinful you are will increase. You will be blinded by your own wretchedness, but you will also be blinded by God's love. So with that, thank you. Thank you.
largest name.